Hey, if you have a Bible, why don't you grab it and let's go to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. I want to look at one of our doctrines, um, and it's a doctrine that theologians have called eschatology. Um, can you say that with me, eschatology? Thank you so much. You sound so brilliant this morning, as always. You guys are Hebrew and Greek scholars now. Eschatology is the study of last things or the study of the end. So this could be the study of what happens after death. This could also be the study of what's going to happen when God returns, consummates his kingdom, and all things are made right. And I want to kind of focus a little bit on the first, but really focus mostly on the latter. What is it going to look like when God returns and makes all things right? No heavy task, right? For centuries, and I say that because for centuries, um, you pastors have gotten a lot of this stuff wrong, and they've majored on this, um, whether that is pre-trib, post-trib, whatever trib you want to be a part of. Uh, and they've, they've put so much of a focus on this that they have forgotten the primary message of the book of Revelation and the primary message of what it looks like to be in full reign with Christ forever. And you've, you start hearing things about blood moons and beasts rising. Hitler at one point was the Antichrist. Now Russia seems to be uh, the particular beast that may be rising. And every generation that has come and every generation that has gone has said, this is it, this is it, we're, we're going. And you and I are still here. That does not mean that Christ's return is not imminent. It could be tomorrow, but it could also be another thousand, two thousand, three thousand years. Now, I'm saying this because I think it would be silly for us to try to go through Revelation and try to decode everything and, um, and, and start majoring on minor things and start majoring on things we really have no business majoring on because the book of Revelation, as we'll talk about in just a second, was written as a congregational letter to uh, a church that many of them were uneducated. And when they would hear the letter being written to them, they would all understand what was happening. Yet we have somehow overcomplicated a letter that was written to a church being heavily persecuted. And we'll talk about the theme of this as we go along I want to just kind of just talk through just a few misconceptions about eternity, uh, or we can say misconceptions about eschatology or misconceptions about end times or misconceptions about what happens when you die. Uh, misconception number one is that you will gain wings when you die. When we, was somebody sad about that? I apologize. It's nothing to be sad about uh, because the Bible would, would talk about how we are going to one day judge angels. Um, so we are greater than the angels, according to what scripture would teach us. Um, you, you don't become a chubby baby playing a harp, floating on a cloud, and you have these cute little wings. Um, when someone dies, you always hear that saying, right? Heaven has what? Gained an angel. No, you didn't know them like I did, right? <laughs> No, they're not an angel. They will not become an angel. In fact, um, 1 Corinthians 6.3 says, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? 
Um, we know that we won't become angels because we will have a new body according to what First Corinthians or Second Corinthians five four says. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, and not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So we're not going to be angels. That's misconception. Misconception number two is that you'll know everything about eternity on this side of eternity. Uh, Newsflash, you won't, okay? You'll know what matters most is that you'll be with him forever. Whether you are the pre-trib or post-trib, guess what? You'll figure out who was wrong when you were in, when you get to heaven. And, and some more serious ones, um, one that I think is prevalent to our culture that we live in is that every person goes to heaven, every good person goes to heaven, right? And then what is kind of being fed in our, in our society, particularly where we live? Well, just be good and you'll make it and, and the level of your goodness. Uh, and, and come on now, let's, let's, let's be honest. We as Christians, sometimes we judge uh, our, our eternity based on like how we're living our life. In a certain degree of that, you, you should be a good person. Nobody wants to hang around the turd, right? Um, but but you, should, you should want to live a life of holiness, yes. But being a good person does not mean that you are going to go to heaven. Jesus says in his word in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, well, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I cast out demons in your name and do mighty, mighty works in your name? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus is giving this message, like no matter how good you think you are, no matter how well you play the part, no matter uh, how good you look to your neighbors, none of that matters in the end. So not all good people go to heaven. And then the other degree to that, that we, that we kind of do this fast reversal, and well, well, only the super bad people go to hell. Like, we, we're only going to see, like, Hitler. He's there, you know, insert who you think the most wicked, vile, disgusting person is in our culture today. That person's going to hell. Well, we're going to read in just a moment that it... <laughs> Many people that we know are on this list, and, and Jesus talks about hell a lot. In fact, if you read um, this Sermon on the Mount, particularly in Matthew chapter 5, he talks about you who are dealing with anger and refuse to deal with it, you go going to hell. All right, that's Matthew's translation, okay? Those of you who are dealing with, I, I don't know, adultery, and, and all the, he lists out some of these sins that Jesus is preaching out against, and he's like, listen, you don't deal with it, then hell is your home forever. Many of us, we think that hell is some figurative place or some place that's just for the really super bad, but this is, this is not what the scripture would teach us. Many of us also think that a misconception of heaven, eternity, eschatology is that it's just boring. You remember the song Amazing Grace? When we've been there 10,000 years, right? We've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. I don't know about y'all though, okay? <laughs> By year 9,000, my voice is out. Okay, like that does not sound super appealing to me. I mean, I'm not hating on the song. I love the song. It's a great song. But that one particular line, it, it, I'm not really encouraged by it. It's not a boring place. In fact, First Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 says, we will rule and we will reign with Christ. 
So we, we get to play in this part where it's not this boring place. We're going to just go and sing for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It's not the kind of place I want to go. Jesus describes heaven as a banquet, as a feast. In, in modern societal terms, Jesus describes heaven as a party. Now all my, all my young people looked up right there now. There you go. And then this last one, because I got to hurry, we think that heaven is just for, it, it, it's, it's about me. Nowhere in the scripture are you going to find that the dwelling place of Matthew. It's not the dwelling place of insert your name right there. It is the dwelling place of God, and it is all about his majesty and glory. So I've given you ample time to get to Revelation chapter 21. If you don't know where the book of Revelation is, just thumb through the very back of the book, and this is the second to the last chapter. And in this particular chapter, we're getting a glimpse of this eschatology, this glimpse of the end things, of what it's going to look like, and, the, and a hope that you and I as believers can garner from this. And so hear the word of the Lord this morning, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the living water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son for, for, but the cowards, the faithless, detestable, murderers, sexual, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with the fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Just real quick, if I can, let me give you just a brief context of Revelation. Revelation is a series of apocalyptic visions, um, predominantly uses uh, symbolisms, numbers, and things like that, filled with prophetic pronouncements. The kingdom of God is come, and the kingdom of God will soon consummate. It's written, as I've alluded to already, as a letter to a church that's being heavily persecuted in Jerusalem. And, and then he's writing the seven letters to around the region. And this letter was one single letter written to a congregation or a church that would be read aloud to them from God in Christ 
through an angel and his servant. And there are various interpretations of Revelation. So if you can just kind of move quickly with me, you may want to write some of these words down. The first interpretation that we find of Revelation, they're called preterist. A preterist is someone who believes that Revelation is a historical event that has already happened. And many of the events that are told in the book of Revelation have already taken place. And I don't have time to get into that. Then you have the historist. They are being, that many of the events are being fulfilled in the course of our Western Christian history. Then you have the futurists. They are largely unfulfilled. Many of the prophecies are largely unfulfilled. And then the idealist, they are fulfilled symbolically throughout the history of the church. And then you get what I like to uh, talk to folks about is the premillennialist, right? Or the millennial reign. It's only found in one section, one scripture in the book of Revelation. And we've taken such a huge doctrine just out of one single verse. And you get people who are premillennialists and they believe that Jesus's return is before this millennial thousand year reign, right? I know these are big terms, but just hang with me. Then you have the post-mill. This is Jesus will return after the thousand-year reign. And we believe that the golden age of the church is something that's taking place now. And many have arguments against and for. And then the all-mill, which is a thousand-year reign that is symbolically happening in heaven. And if none of this makes sense, that's okay, because I want to give you the main purpose and the main thing that I want you to take away from the book of Revelation This book was not meant to create mass confusion. In fact, what we have seen in the history of church, that the church historically for roughly 1,800 years just held to one single view of the book of Revelation. And it wasn't up until 200 years ago, roughly 200 years ago, that we had other doctrines come in and other views come in and different interpretations and various interpretations of the book of Revelation that caused a lot of confusion among the church. And so we have, we have gone through the weeds and we have missed the entire meadow that is before us, that God is really presenting a message of hope to the church. This isn't a message of destruction and, 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 and fear that the church should see these beasts rising. And so everybody freak out and, and let's, let's write a whole series and maybe a, a weird movie about that, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, don't worry about it. It's, this book was written to a church that is hard-pressed. They, they, they have loved ones who have died because of persecution. They have, they have people right now in their congregation that's being hard-pressed, and death is imminent for them. And, and this message of Revelation is endure, stay steadfast. Do not give in to the false prophets that will rise. Do not give in to all the craziness in culture right now. Remain steadfast because there is a hope for you coming. And that's the hope that we have. Hope is an interesting thing, and this is a hope. And the main theme of Revelation is the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus will conquer. So church who's feeling persecuted, church who's feeling heavily weighed down, Jesus conquers. Jesus is victorious. Put your hope in Christ. There will be beasts who rise up, who will say that they are the Christ, who will say that they are God. And these Caesars and these empires rose in their time thinking they were God. There will be false prophets among you who say they have another gospel, who are telling you 
false narratives about who Christ is. Don't give in to that, young church. And so Jesus gives this young, early church who is enduring hard press in the face of persecution. Remain hopeful because there will be a day when Christ makes all things right. Again, hope is a very interesting thing. We have general hopes and then we have maybe eternal hopes. And I think some of us in this room, we may have some of those things mixed, right? We, we hope to pass an exam. We hope to get a job. We hope to, you know, we hope the person likes us. We hope this, we hope that. And then, and then we, we get older, then our hopes become a little bigger. We hope that we make money. We hope we have a big house. We hope that we have kids that obey us. Amen, parents. We hope all of these things. Sadly, these hopes for some of us have become like eternal hopes for us. None of those hopes are bad at all. In fact, I hope a lot of those things that I just listed. But if I'm placing my eternal, like, longing, if I'm placing all of my, my, my hope and vitality and all of those things, then my life is just going to be so, so mixed up and out of place. Again, John, the revelator, is telling them, put your hope in Christ. That's eternity. Put your hope in eternity with Christ. In chapter 21 and 21 and 22 in the book of Revelation, this is about Christ bringing his kingdom. This is about Christ ruling and reigning. This is about Christ, the Alpha, the Omega, ruling and reigning with his people. And now suddenly what was lost in the Garden of Eden has been refound and and made new where, where this new heaven and this new earth comes and where we are all with Christ, those who believe in him. And so John is given this church, right? I mean, if you're being hard pressed, like isn't this exciting news? Well, maybe not for you, but for me it is. I mean, this is, this is some great news to a church who's on the verge of being persecuted and thrown to lions. So for them, it had a lot of weight to it. But for us, we look at it and we're just kind of, meh, cool. Again, where are you placing your hope at? Where, where, where are you placing all of your hope let me make just, well, let me, let me get into this text. And, and I want to just bring out a few things that, that are fascinating about eternity and fascinating about what we have to look forward to. Notice in verse five, he says, then the one seated on the throne says, look, I'm making all things new. So if there's something that you want to take away from this is that, that Christ, the end for God's people is brand new. The end for God's people is brand new. You know, unless you're a hipster, you know, you don't like new stuff, right? Because hipsters are always trying to bring the, the, the old and make it new again. I'm like, please stop. Let the 80s die, right? I don't know. Maybe you don't feel that way. But we really like new stuff, right? We like new cars. We like the new houses. We like new relationships, new friends, but we also know that those things, they wear off. 
there's something about this newness that, that Jesus is talking about here in his word. Something about this newness, it, it will never wear off. It never fades. It, it never loses its awe and wonder. This newness that Christ is preparing for us and this newness that awaits for us is, is something that we'll never think of, ah, now it's just kind of meh. You know, I, I personally think we live in like one of the most beautiful places. I mean, you just drive one way, you get glorious mountain views. You drive one way, just 20 minutes, you get a canyon, like where the crap did this come from? And then you drive this way, you get a desert and that's for, you know, Satan's people and that's okay. And then like, it's just, it's crazy because it's all beautiful and it's all just, you know, I, I've only lived here for a year. It's not lost, it's on us, right? It's not lost its majesty to me. Maybe for some of you, if it has lost its awe, then I would encourage you to go visit the Midwest or the South because there's nothing awe about that place. But for, and I could say that because I lived in the South. I mean, just think like, like, like you get like all these glorious things and they never lose its value. They never lose its wonder and awe. Like Jesus is making something and has something for us that's new where everything always looks new, where we're always just, oh, look at God. And there's uh, several implications to what will be new. Like, we'll be spiritually new. All right, think about the weight of that. Like, we'll be spiritually new. Here's what that means. No more struggling in your faith. Like, you step into eternity with Christ. Like, no more, no more temptations. No more struggling in that sin that you can't conquer. None of that. You've been spiritually made new. Where old things have gone and you have stepped into this newness with Christ. No more struggling with doubts. No more struggling in your faith. No more struggling with, these, with anger and temptations. You've been spiritually made new. And as we've already read from 2 Corinthians, like we'll, we'll be physically made new. Now, some of you are like, man, I'm, I'm physically fine. Like, okay, wait till you turn 30, all right? When you turn 40 and all the, everything just starts follow, falling apart. And some of you, I, I know, I get it. Eat your greens, eat your protein. I get, it's going to be good for you until you reach a certain age. It don't matter how many greens you've eaten in your life something's going to go bad. I woke up this morning from a great night's sleep and my neck is just cut out. Like, I don't know, I could barely move it. I don't know if I just reached for the shampoo and it just cracked and broke itself to pieces. I'm like, come on. But some of you, you got a deeper feel for this. And this is more exciting for some of you because for some of you, you've dealt a life of physical issues. And maybe some of you, and I know we have people in our church who are dealing with incredible just physical challenges right now. Can I, can I give us an eternal hope that one day you'll step into eternity and you will be physically made new where all the pain that you endured in your life will be no more. The cancer you fought, the diseases you fought will be a distant memory because you'll be physically made new. And, and I think the other implication of this is that we'll have a new relationship with Christ. We'll no longer be walking, we'll no longer be walking by faith. Isn't that incredible? Like my faith says Christ is real. I know what the word of God says. 
Because when we are in eternity, we will see him face to face. And, And we'll no longer have Christ like inside of us, the Holy Spirit. Like we'll be walking with him. We'll be talking with him. Of all the things that were lost in the garden, we get those things back and we get a better reality of it. And this, this other part I like about what gives us this hope of eternity is that God will dwell with us. This is just what, what we were just talking about. Look at verse number three. This, then I heard a voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. It, growing up in Southern culture and Southern church, you always would hear, you know, well, I'm going to have my mansion in heaven. You know, I'm going to have my little cabin. Just give me a little cabin in the corner of heaven. I'll be all right. Well, that's, that's theologically wrong. You're going to have some physical mansion in heaven. Mansion here is talking about a dwelling place of God. It's not a physical building. Because what is a mansion? What does that communicate to you, right? You pull up to a mansion. You got to go through a gate. Like, this is like, keep out or we will shoot, right? I mean, that's what we don't want you in. That's what a mansion communicates. But the dwelling place of God is he wants all of his people in. And now we are dwelling with him, walking with him. As we read in 1 Corinthians, judging with him, um, ruling and reigning with him. In verse 4, it gives us another view of eternity that all of the brokenness will be reversed. Look at verse number 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death death will be no more grief, crying, uh, pain no more because the previous things have passed away. This verse has always, always perplexed me. Just always perplexed me. That he will wipe away the tears from their eyes. Isn't that interesting? I don't know, for me, like when I'm reading this, I'm wondering like, well, why is everybody crying? Right? Like we... Y'all got allergy problems? I thought we were in heaven. But just for me, like, just think about this. Like, you're finally feeling like you don't have the weight of sin anymore. And it's just this overwhelming feeling of no more guilt, no more shame, no more sickness, right? Because that's what he's saying. No no more pain, no more grief, no more crying. And so there's this overwhelming feeling of just tears of joy. And there awaiting us in heaven in eternity is Christ. What is he saying? He's wiping away those tears. Like welcome to a life where there's no more depravity. Welcome to a life where there's no more heaviness, where there's no more oppression. And it's this overwhelming feeling for the saints to step out of the oppression into a life where there is no oppression, into a life where there's no more grief, no more pain, no more crying, into a life that is fulfilling, that all that we've, all that we've searched for, all that our hearts have been longing for have now been satisfied. It's, it's a life of continuous satisfaction in Christ Jesus. You got, you got grief, man, and I understand grief. I've, I've been in rooms, I've myself dealt with grief. And some of you are dealing with your types, different types of grief. 
Some of you are dealing with pain and suffering. You've dealt with the trauma of the depravity of this world. And, 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 and John gives us this, this eternal hope, like none of that, no more. In fact, when he references, and the seas will be no more, it's because seas was a bad thing for them. You good if you made it cross the sea. It's a dangerous place. Waves come up. Shipwreck you as Paul had been shipwrecked before. So a sea for them was this bad thing. Sea's bad. And, and, and now John says there's no more of that. No more trials. No more persecution. And now step into the realm of this early church who's been dealing with pain, dealing with persecution, and now feel how they must have felt when they read these words that Christ is offering the, this hope. Y'all, there's no more grief, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sickness. And everything you have dealt with in your life, from the trauma, from everything, when you step into an eternity with Christ, it's a distant memory. It's no more. You have finally been satisfied in Christ. No more longings. No more temptations. None of that is, it's gone. That's, that's a, the eternal hope that we have. And again, I want to just press, like some of us, we want to focus on the beast, the blood moons, all these weird creatures that are rising up. You're missing the bigger picture that John is painting here. And it's a hope. So just a couple of things, just a couple of thoughts that I want to give before I close. And then I want to talk about that last verse. This doctrine of last things, this doctrine of eschatology, this doctrine of like the end. What do we do with it? Like, what does that mean for us? Just two quick thoughts, and they kind of go together. One is from James um, chapter 4, verse 14. It says, yet do you not know what tomorrow will bring? What is your life? Like, thanks, pastor. And then like the most non-encouraging verse ever. What's your life? Jeez, oh, man. At this point, James needs a drink or a hug, one of them. For you are, and then he goes on. He's like, for you are a mist that appears for a little bit and then vanishes. Like, thanks for the encouragement. Like, you're here just like that. But don't miss what he's saying here. How you live this life matters. How you live this life matters. And it really shows what your view of eternity is and how you are living right now. How are you living your life in the realms of eternity? I think that's a, that's a question that we should ask. It's a question that maybe you ask your families, you ask your friends, like, how are we living this life from an eternal perspective? Like, are all the things we're buying or all the things we're, we're giving all of our energy and all of our things that we're giving our time to, does it really matter in the scope of eternity? Some of the things that you answer, they may, but, but I think some of those things, I think our priorities have been re- or just kind of misaligned in our life. And then I think one of the bigger things that we do is we focus on what Jesus tells us to focus to, on. Jesus, 
I think we'll do a series on the Olivet Discourse one day in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 uh, when Jesus gives an eschatological view of what's about to happen. But one verse that, that really stands out to me is Jesus tells them to be watchful, be alert, be aware of what's going on. So many of us are living a life that we're not alert and we're not aware of the kingdom things that are happening. And we, we choose to kind of live our lives isolated. We kind of choose to live a life that says, I'm not going to engage in culture around me. We just want to, we just want to hide in our little closet, hide in our house. But Jesus is in this picture as he is going through the middle of like, here's what things are going to pan out. Like, here's how things are going to happen. Here's what's going to happen to you guys. In the middle of it, he just tells them this little, I don't know if it's a warning or just kind of this, this encouragement, but guys, watch out, be alert. There's still kingdom things that are happening here. And there's still kingdom things that need to be advanced in our world. So this is a message from Jesus to his disciples saying, you, you have no room in your life to disengage. You have to continuously be watchful, be alert of what's happening around you. That's why obedience here on earth matters. Obedience here matters, and it does give us a view of how you view eternity. Obedient to Christ in his words to go and make disciples and baptize them and teach them to obey. Obedience here matters and how you view eternity or how you view your life now is shaping how you view God and how you view eternity. So one question, and then I want to deal with hell and I'll be done. How, like really, in seven minutes, okay? If I do this in seven minutes, I, I deserve like an award or something. Like just a participation trophy that'll make me feel good. How, how do you get there, right? That's the question. Then we all know, well, Jesus Christ is the way we get there. Well, do you really know? Because what culture is trying to do is trying to, trying to get you to leak their theology, which is bad and wrong, into our Christian theology. Well, what makes you happy? That's how you get to eternity. Well, what, is, what does culture say is acceptable? Is Jesus really the way? Because we have all these religions, and why can't they all be right? Well, they're all wrong. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one goes before the Father except through Jesus Christ. You want to spend eternity with Christ? Here's your option. Jesus. All right? That's it. Believe in Christ. Believe in the Son of God, the, the one of a kind, the God-man, Jesus. That's our hope. That's eternity. Or we have this other option, right? Because you can't skip over. Like, I, I would love to skip over this part. Man, many preachers will skip over this idea that Jesus talks about many times in the Gospels and that Jesus is talking about this, this damnable lake of fire, right? And I got I to gotta hope that that's how he said it to John, right? Or you'll be persecuted in hell. So you have this, this other option. Hell is not an illusion. Jesus is not talking about some, he's not like making a sermon illustration. Like if, you, if you're just, a, 
you know, angry all the time, you're, you're lusting, you're an idolater, you're a sorcerer, then we'll put you in this proverbial little place over here in lockdown. You know, he's talking about this place is hell and it's a place of eternal torture. That is terrifying. Listen, this is the point of salvation. All right, I want to get this into our heads. Salvation isn't that God saved us from, I don't know, purposelessness. That's a long word. I don't even know if that is a word. Uh, God, God saved us from being lonely. God saved us from all of these things, from my sickness, from he saved me from poverty. Okay, maybe a little bit of that is true, but that's not the ultimate goal of salvation. God saved you out of hell, honey. That's what he saved you from, into a life with Christ. So he didn't save you from all these, these fairy tale type things where, oh, God saved me from being purposeless and lonely. Well, okay, maybe he did give you a purpose, and yeah, maybe his spirit is now with you, but that's ultimately not the idea of salvation. He saved you because he crushed sin and death and hell, and he saved you out of that into eternity with him. And that's what he calls us to proclaim. This message of salvation. That's what salvation means in its origin. It's being rescued from something. And we're being rescued from eternal damnation that Jesus talks about here in this text. And you know, and I, and I just will address this one question and then I'll be done. Well, that's not fair right? I mean, come on now. I think that sometimes. Because I, and I want to go back to those misconceptions. Like, I think like, there's a really good person who I didn't, who I knew. They, they just, they were anti-Jesus, but they're a great person. I want that person to go to heaven. That, that just doesn't seem fair. And that's what we say about all things in life. So now you are the determining judge of what is fair in life. Really? You want to be the judge of what's fair in your life? You want to be the one who determines what is fair? Like you cheat, you lie. You doubt, you do all of this stuff. And so now you want to be the authority of what is fair. Okay, I got you. See how silly and mad that sounds? The only thing that was unfair is not that the good person goes to hell, but that the God-man, Jesus Christ, was brutally murdered on a criminal's cross who lived a sinless life. That's not fair. So we want to be the judge and the arbiter of, of the truth of what is fair or not. That's, that's just baloney. I use the word baloney. I'm never, like, what am I, like 95 years old now? I don't know. There will be a day when all things have been made right. And I want this to be our doctrine of eternity. New Jerusalem comes down and we are with a new heaven and an ultimate home, a new earth. We will dwell with God for eternity. We will rule and we will reign. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more pain. There will be no more grief, no more sadness. We will have a new body. We'll have be spiritually made new. And we'll have a, be a new relationship with God. Every struggle that I have now, every painful moment that I have now, every disappointment, every heartache that you experience, 
will become a distant memory. He will dwell with us. A place where Amos says, where the mountains drip with sweet wine. No more going to the state-run liquor store for wine, I suppose. Isaiah 65 says, where the wolf and the lamb will graze together in a pasture. So all that sin and brokenness that caused the wolf to want to eat the lamb is no more. All of the sin and the shame that was caused and the brokenness that was caused because of sin that came into the world, a distant memory. And we rule and we reign with Christ forever. Where's your hope at? 